Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our oceans and how to care for them. My name is John Sherburn. I'm the show's producer, and I want to talk to you for a second about who we are and tell you how to get a hold of us. The Blue Earth Podcast is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a not-for-profit organization focused on developing ocean ambassadors and future leaders. We are a diverse, interdisciplinary team who work hard to keep our Earth, well, blue. If you like the show, please subscribe, like, rate, comment, review, whatever floats your boat. If you want to see more Future Frogman content, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, and LinkedIn at Future Frogman, and at our website, futurefrogman.org, where you can subscribe to hear about upcoming podcasts. Right now, we're gearing for weekly shows where we'll converse with guests about our oceans. Until we're fully up and running, we're repurposing our video conversation series to showcase some of our favorite episodes, like today's. Our podcast host and president is Richard Hyman, who has a lot of experience with our oceans. Today's guest speakers are Gwen McDonald and Alex Crofta of an organization named Save the Sound. They both work in ecological restoration, which covers a lot of ground and water. Thank you. And remember, anybody can be an ocean ambassador. All right, so why don't we get started? Let's get into it. The topic of our conversation is the ecological restoration in the Long Island Sound region and more specifically, ecological restoration that has been done or is being done or is planned to be done by a great organization called Save the Sound, based here in New Haven, Connecticut. As a boy growing up here in Weston, Connecticut, I spent a lot of time on the Aspetuck River and the Saugatuck River uh, fishing and had a little Boston whaler out on the Sound doing fishing, camping, water skiing, and so forth. So this topic is really near and dear to my heart. Uh, I love all water and all nature, but uh, this one uh, really hits home. For those of you that are not familiar with Long Island Sound, it's a tidal estuary. It's between Long Island, New York, on the, to the south, and Connecticut to the north. It's about 120 miles long, and at its widest point, it's 21 miles uh, in width. It's fed by freshwater tributaries and the Atlantic Ocean, salt water from the Atlantic Ocean. So it's got a mixture. It's a really precious estuary for uh, a lot of uh, uh, natural species. So I'd like to introduce our guests from Save the Sound. We have Gwen McDonald. Gwen is the uh, director of Green Projects and restoration at Save the Sound, and we have Alex Crofta, the Ecological Restoration Projects Manager. And I had the opportunity to meet Alex about a year ago at a Patagonia event, a Patagonia store in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, Future Frogman is actually partnered with Patagonia. And uh, Save the Sound was, was there. I, I joined Save the Sound that evening, and we saw a screening of a wonderful Patagonia film called Blue Heart, which I'd highly recommend. I noticed that it is now available on YouTube, uh, so you can see the whole film there. And it's really about uh, wild rivers in Eastern Europe and the associated cultures and ecosystems that are threatened by approximately 3,000 hydropower plants there. It's really a, an excellent film and uh, it talks about uh, the value of preventing dam construction and, and taking dams down, uh, how, how that can uh, uh, impact uh, favorably or negatively depending upon the scenario of what's going on there. So uh, one of the things we're gonna talk about tonight is uh, dam removal and the work that Save the Sound does on that. Uh, as well as other ecological restoration projects that they work on. I recently had the opportunity to meet Gwen as well, having met Alex a year ago, recently met Gwen, and uh, really just so impressed by both Gwen and Alex that I asked them if they would be, uh, be my guest. So with that, uh, I'd like to ask you, Gwen, um, I noticed that you've been with Save the Sound for about 10 years now. Uh, initially uh, overseeing restoration projects, and, and now you're, uh, uh, looks like you're overseeing the entire program, uh, kind of from soup to nuts. So uh, could, 
could you tell us uh, more about maybe starting with your background, your education, and, and how your career has evolved? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Richard. That was a, a wonderful introduction to the, the sound and um, I really appreciate it. It's a, an interesting place to be and, and it's been uh, fun to, to work on projects um, for, yeah, 10 years now. Um, so I uh, have been sort of living and playing in rivers for <laughs> for a really long time since I was a very little kid. Um, actually, up in the, the picture in the background of my uh, Zoom call right now is uh, is up in the Adirondacks, and I uh, uh, spent a lot of time there as a kid, and um, actually ended up going to um, uh, undergrad at uh, SUNY ESF, which is an environmental science and forestry college up in Syracuse that also has uh, owns uh, 700 acres up in the Adirondacks and uh, uses that as a classroom and a facility to study all sorts of um, environmentally related fields. Uh, and so my particular focus was uh, ecological engineering and, uh, and that's sort of applying engineering principles to the natural world um, and uh, and that uh, I was lucky enough to have that really inform what I get to do for a living. Not everybody uh, is, is that lucky and I feel pretty fortunate to do that. Um, I, for a while I was working in uh, engineering consulting before I came to Save the Sound, um, but uh, my interest has been in these natural systems that was cultivated um, both through uh, really play and my own interests as a kid and then through um, you know scientific uh, engagement in, uh, in, in uh, formal education. Um, at Save the Sound, uh, the uh, program uh, historically, we partnered with local land trusts and other groups that would um, maybe their focus was a one-off restoration project in a piece of land that they may have owned. Uh, and so um, Save the Sound's role was to maybe bring resources to a project like that. But the projects were very different. They, they, um, it wasn't necessarily a, a barrier removal, dam removal wasn't necessarily always a component. And, uh, um, you know, it, it really was dependent on the partners that, that we had on any individual project. Uh, and I was hired in uh, 2010 um, after uh, the uh, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act after the uh, recession. Uh, Save the Sound was awarded a, a two and a half million dollar grant to uh, complete two very large restoration projects in New Haven and in East Lyme, uh, Connecticut, uh, for the restoration of fish passage um, on the West River and uh, Bride Brook. Um, and so uh, th those projects um, allowed me to build relationships with some of our statewide um, restoration partners and um, it really uh, demonstrated a need to have a group of people that are able to take lessons that you're learning on one project and apply them to the next project um, and uh, you know land trusts and folks that are doing things on an individual parcel their main that may be the only you know that problem may exist one time on their particular piece of land that they're working with and uh, and so sometimes those lessons that you learn uh, through every project um, get lost and so that's been um, it's it, I think the size of the program now has really uh, is a demonstration to uh, to how much of a need there was for that so um, fast forward um, you know we can talk more about about ecological restoration but uh, uh, fast forward to, to now and, and um, we have a robust team of, of people that are working on um, a variety of different kinds of projects, both in um, ecological restoration in uh, like barrier removal and fish passage and um, living shorelines and some of the pro projects that um, Alex works on to our um, urban green infrastructure work um, where we're focusing more on stormwater. Um, but all of those projects benefit the Long Island Sound ecosystem uh, and all of them um, work towards the eco ecological restoration. Um, and when we say that, what we mean is, uh, is working with nature, is working with to, uh, nature to restore natural processes um, as opposed to restoring something in its form. So restoring function instead of form. Um, 
and, and yeah, that's that's a little background on me and our our program. That that's interesting to hear, function versus form, and it it, it reminds me of your engineering training. Mm -hmm. um, and I when we spoke recently, I I had not realized you were an engineer, and that that's uh, that's quite interesting. Uh, and and now in your role. I mentioned before soup to nuts and what what I meant by that and you can articulate it better but you're you're dealing with the upfront design the execution or implementation the the uh, qualifying and hiring of various contractors subcontractors and uh, I understand you even get involved with uh, helping potentially fund the projects so through grants and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure, yeah, so we are, uh, it, I think that may be, uh, it's, it's a really um, interesting part of this job. It doesn't, I mean, I think with many, many, um, many jobs, you're sort of working in one particular component of a project. Um, and with this, we're kind of, herding cats <laughs> and working with each of uh, each of the different um, components at, as you go along. So um, definitely, uh, you know, our, our program is grant funded. Um, and so uh, we are raising funds to, to work on a collection of projects. And so every time we finish a new project, there's, uh, or finish a project, there's a new one uh, that fills in and, and that, um, you know, compiled together uh, forms our program. Um, but in addition, so we're, we're identifying projects and funding sources for those projects. Um, identifying and collaborating with um, design engineers and consultants uh, to to you know put pen to paper and and draw up design plans or you know in in, in some projects uh, working on those things in-house uh, working with construction contractors uh, to actually implement the projects and um, and our regulatory partners to permit them um, we're also and this is something that um, we've been able to um, get into more of is our monitoring program uh, and so that uh, is is a is a component that uh, if you know there's just one one or two of us it's it's not possible to add and then in, in house um, but since uh, since the our numbers are greater we're now able to monitor and and uh, talk about the the um, results uh, ecological results of some of our our projects um, yeah, Alex, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let, let's uh, bring in, I want to come back to the monitoring, but let's, yeah, let's yeah, bring okay. you in, Alex, please. Uh, first of all, hold that thought that Gwen was just asking you if, if you could. And let, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Clark University, correct? Yep, that's uh, where I started. Um, it's where I remembered how much I just loved nature. I uh, was taking a, I was on a different trajectory, I guess, and then uh, was fulfilling a science requirement and realized that like this is, this was my thing and it had always been. Um, so after school, I went into sort of my first like career trajectory was kind of wildlife research, uh, looking into like rare reptiles and amphibians, uh, seeing the need for habitat protection and land protection. I moved into that realm a bit. And then from there, I kind of wanted to look at, um, habitat management, um, so sort of some restoration of habitat types. Um, but I think uh, going back to what Gwen was saying, I sort of started to really see the need to protect and restore uh, natural processes, especially in an age of climate change where we don't know where anything is going particularly um, in terms of ecological outcomes. We do know that we need certain processes to be intact. Um, so that's sort of what has pushed me into this into this field. Um, I went to, I went back to school in Massachusetts in Western Mass, um, which is kind of a landscape design and planning program with a really strong ecological focus because I wanted to build my skill set in restoration. Um, and then I did some restoration work uh, following that and then I've landed here. And I've been here for about a year. It'll be a year next week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I met you a year ago, you had 
just come aboard, I believe. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was, you said the, the Conway School is where you went back to, right? Yep. Yeah. Was that uh, like a, were you doing that while you were working, like a night school, or did you just go back full time? It was a, it's like a one year intensive program. Okay. So I was not working. I was yeah. just at school. Good. And well, actually, our, our, another person who worked with us was my classmate at the Conway School. Uh, uh, Carrie White, who works on our um, green infrastructure projects, he was my classmate of mine. Well, I was looking at your background and, and the, the environmental track, is, is, you know, really comes through. That, and and yeah. that's a blessing that you were able to uh, recognize that passion so early and, and pursue right. a career in it. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think uh, Gwen was uh, uh, tossing the ball over to you to talk a little bit about, uh, we, were, we were talking about monitoring and maybe uh, one of the projects you're working on. Yeah, sure. Um, so we do, we've, we do some monitoring on, pro, on projects that are complete. So we want to, we're removing some of, we're removing dams for fish passage. So what we do is we then set a trap, a fish trap, a non-lethal sort of funnel. It's like a big minnow trap in the river we set that upstream of the site and we monitor what is passing through. Um, so we've been seeing on most of our, on the two sites that we're monitoring most uh, readily, we're seeing uh, alewife coming back in pretty big numbers. Um, you know, it varies year to year. It's just kind of a cyclical thing, but uh, we're seeing good numbers. We're also seeing other migratory fish um, actually just this week. We, on Whitford Brook out in Stonington, we caught our first, um, American shad. So that would be the first American shad that was known to be past that particular dam site. I don't know in how many years when? 300. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, in addition to the, the migratory fish monitoring, we also work with uh, Connecticut uh, Department of Fisheries and we monitor the resident, we, we go out and we, during the summer, we monitor the resident fish communities to see if it's sort of reverting to or, or um, returning to a, a, a riverine fish community as opposed to a, a pond fish community um, behind that on, in that unnatural impoundment. Um, that was a result of the dam. And we are seeing a return to, yeah, the river community and also the return of some species like uh, brook trout, um, which is a cold water indicator. So yeah, it's like really exciting stuff. Um, we also look at uh, the vegetation that is recolonizing that impoundment. Um, we did some surveys to see if that vegetation that's coming back is, you know, just what the diversity is and also what the, um, like the wetland indicator status is of that, of that plant community. Um, and we're also working with a team from Yale, um, from the Yale School of Forestry, who's doing a much more in-depth sort of statewide study on how forests and other vegetation communities are, are regenerating on these uh, former dam impoundments post-removal. So yeah, that's sort of a broad brush of our monitoring, I'd say. How, how do you uh, monitor the fish? You were just, how, how, how do you do that? Oh, the, um, the fish communities? Yeah. So it's, a, it's called electrofishing, which is exactly what it sounds like. Um, it's a, a standard method that fisheries staff uses to sample a stream reach. So they walk through and they've got these wands, these electro electric backpacks and then wands and it, it sends a current through the water. It stuns the fish, you scoop them up, you put them in a bucket and then you count them and then they wake up, they wake back up and then you let them go. So it's a pretty standard fisheries sampling method and that's how we do that. And, and what about, uh, you mentioned a fish trap, does that, it sounded like it doesn't actually trap it and keep it in there, or, or does it? Yeah, it funnels. It, so I'm using my hands. There's a river behind me. So it's like funneling. It funnels into like a little basket. The fish go in there, then they can't swim out. And then you scoop them out with the net and you count them and then you throw them back, but past the trap. So then they continue swimming upstream to whatever spawning habitat they were pursuing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the other uh, fish sampling method. Okay. Interesting. So um, maybe let's take a step backwards for a moment and, and just, I know Save the Sound has recently uh, decided on 
one name, you, you, you're a roll up or a combination of really three different organizations. And for a while you were using two names. Can you talk a little bit about the history and, and this recent development? You want me to tackle or you want to do it? That way. Um, I haven't been around quite as long, but I'll, I'll, I'll tackle it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we used to be Connecticut Fund for the Environment. Hey. <laughs> That's a collector's item now. Yeah. So yeah, Save the Sound. It's been we've been around for forty years. Um, we focus on sort of region-wide environmental action. So we're looking at uh, fighting climate change, uh, protecting you know important landscapes. And then of course, protecting our waterway, protecting and restoring our waterways, the sound as well as the freshwater systems that feed that sound. Um, and we do that through a series of different methods. We have like advocacy and outreach just to you know normal citizens. And then we do also legal action if that's needed. Um, we have a pretty big program for water quality testing known as the Unified Water Study that looks at water quality and the embayments around uh, Long Island Sound. And then there's the physical restoration projects that we that our team works on. So that's the dam removal, barrier removal, uh, fish pass like fish ways and fish ladders, the green infrastructure, marsh restoration, and that all of that. Okay. So. Yeah. Thanks. I know. And and uh, there was actually a third organization some years ago, the Soundkeeper. Yeah, I can add to that. Um, so the uh, Save the Sound went through um, a pretty robust. Um, uh, survey and branding effort with our both with our members and with the general public um, to talk about a unified name. There's really been a need for one since the Connecticut Fund for the Environment and Save the Sound merged in 2003. <laughs> um, but with the addition of Soundkeeper, um, it became even more necessary. So uh, Terry Backer, who was the original Soundkeeper, um, was uh, really a, a huge advocate for Long Island Sound and a state legislator. And he passed away. Uh, and prior to his passing, he um, and Soundkeeper as a, an individual entity sought out another organization to adopt the uh, the, the nonprofit. And so, uh, you know, with his blessing, Save the Sound, um, uh, adopted the Soundkeeper program, and now uh, we have uh, a Soundkeeper on staff named Bill Lucy. So a sound, Soundkeeper is a person as well as the the entity uh, and part of the Waterkeeper Network, which is an international network. Uh, and so uh, we retain those connections and um, and and a boat named the Terry Backer, uh, and uh, and but now under a unified name of Save the Sound. Uh, and that was far and away the um, pit choice by uh, both people in inland uh, systems in New York and Connecticut for uh, what was name uh, really resonated with people and seemed like the most, something that we most conveyed what we're doing. <laughs> uh, and so, um, I mean, I've got to say from a personal, from a personal end, it, it really feels, um, right to be able to, to very succinctly say uh, what it is that we're trying to achieve. So we're happy with that. Great. Yeah, I think I, well, I definitely remember Terry. I, I think uh, he started, I can't put a year on it, but when I was a, a kid, I think he started. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was out of like the Westport or Norwalk area. That's right, yeah, yep. I thought it was a really cool effort and uh, and a cool guy. I never had the chance to meet him, but uh, uh, he he did some good work. So let's get back to nature and talk about uh, the work that you all do. Um, I guess I'll let you pick uh, what project area you might like to uh, share more about with us, to, at least to start. Uh, I don't quite know where to start. Um, we're working on so much. Um, maybe could I give like a quick rundown of just projects that we have ongoing? Sure. Um, I'll be brief. Uh, so we've got um, a fish ladder installation, also known as a fishway, going on on the Farm River in um, North Brantford. That's for migratory alewife uh, and other species to get over a dam. We often take out dams, but when there's not that opportunity, we might pursue another option such as a fish ladder 
or a technical fishway or a natural sort of natural rock ramp. Um, so we're working on that. We've got a few dam removals in the pipe that we're working on. Um, there's one out in Fanger, on Fanger Brook out in New London. Uh, that's a really small dam. That's like four feet high. Uh, really tiny little pond. We're, we're take, working on taking that out. We're also looking at the Dana Dam in Merwin Meadows Park on the Norwalk River. That's a much larger dam. Um, still a pretty small impoundment, um, again, for um, you know, migratory fish and the restoration of sort of cold water habitat through that uh, impoundment, which will soon be a free flowing channel with floodplains and um, floodplain wetlands uh, sort of abutting it. We've got some <clears throat> fairly large scale uh, green infrastructure projects. We've got one that's going in in the Hamden Town Center Park. That's gonna be um, what's now just a soggy field is gonna be restored to an actual wetland. Um, to sort of filter uh, stormwater that's running off of a site as well as um, creates a little pocket of habitat in a park. Um, we've got some really small stuff. Uh, residential, Gwen and I were actually both uh, digging up sod earlier today on a residential <laughs> rain garden. So that's just essentially going to a number of houses in a priority watershed in the town in the city of New Haven and disconnecting downspouts that go into the sewer system and directing that instead to a small depression known as a rain garden uh, to infiltrate that water and again create a little tiny piece of habitat with uh, you know wetter soils, um, vegetation that grows in that area, native, we plant native plants uh, for pollinators and other species. Um, we're in the middle of monitoring season so we're checking traps every day. Um, yeah, that's a sample of what we're working on currently. I don't know if you want to delve into any of that or if you want to talk a bit more about future projects that we're also looking at. Well, it's interesting hearing about the, uh, the stormwater. So you're, you're actually creating a mini habitat, but you're also, the, the effort is to prevent, even if it was a small number of houses from that water going out into the sound. That's the ultimate goal. Is that my on, on target there? Yes. Uh, there's a number of there's a number of issues with stormwater. The, I think the issue in that particular neighborhood is a combined sewer overflow. Gwen, is that right in the the West River? Okay. Um, so some older some older infrastructure some older sewer infrastructure combines the water from the storm drain, so the water from the street and the water from your house into the same sewer system and treats it all, which is fine if there's not too much water. When there's too much water, that overflows and dumps, all of it dumps out untreated into waterways. So that's one problem. That's, a, that's what's known as a CSO. So in that neighborhood, what they're trying to do is, or what we're trying to do is remove any water, any water that doesn't need to be going into that system, send that into the ground instead and have it infiltrate the soil, which is how it naturally would be that would be the natural hydrology anyway. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of benefits to that just in and of its own value. Um, when, water, when water runs off of a, a surface, uh, off of pavement, it picks up dirt and debris and pollutants and it gets warm and it washes very quickly into streams. So it's polluted water. You can imagine a lot of water rushing in all at once it's very flashy, so the, the water is like really high and then it's really low, um, depending on what's happening, you know, with through precipitation. But if it's infiltrating the groundwater and seeping through more slowly, it's getting filtered and it's um, creating a more steady hydrograph. So yeah, there's ups and downs, there's highs and lows, there's floods and, and droughts, but it's not as, the swings aren't as wide. So that's kind of the idea, one of the ideas behind um, a more, restoring these natural systems through um, green infrastructure. Did that answer your question? Yes, no, that was good. So. I'm sorry, I kind of went on a little. Oh, no, that was good. Okay. And, and uh, I've heard you use the term uh, urban restoration. Would that fall into that category or is urban restoration something different? 
Like when I hear that, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the cities where, where there's rushing water just in the scenario you talked about, but instead of uh, a local community of houses, it, it may be sidewalks and streets and it's ultimately trying to get down to the river and into the sound. So that's a, a larger scale project. Can, can you? Yeah, so this project, um, to, uh, I'll use New Haven as an example community, but this could exist in a variety of communities. Um, there is, uh, you know, an urban downtown area that's very heavily paved and uh, and then really a, a lot of of, uh, of paved surfaces quite far into the residential area and then eventually once you get up rivers upstream um, there is actually a lot of water company land and more forested um, and less dense uh, development so as you're going from north to south, you're running downhill and water is collecting pollutants and picking up uh, speed, frankly, and uh, and then discharging into the rivers and waterways that feed Long Island Sound. Um, Alex described the combined sewer overflow problems that exist. Uh, and so that's untreated sewage also discharging right into our rivers and then into Long Island Sounds. Um, that, uh, um, so, uh, but urban restoration doesn't have to mean one project in one downtown city streetscape. And in fact, um, one of the problems with urban water management is that uh, separating that those sewers, those combined sewers, would require digging up some of those really intensely heavily trafficked and used city streets and digging up pipes that are made maybe made of brick that have been under there for a hundred years or more. Uh, and so. And the, an alternative to that is filtering and man, managing and filtering water where it falls, rain where it falls. And so um, New Haven is, is really adopted that in a major way. Uh, so there are 200 bioswales, uh, which are these curbside rain gardens that are, are a little bit deeper than a rain garden, right? So they're, they have this well, um, uh, and in, in New Haven, they're sort of five feet by 15 feet in the uh, tree belt. Uh, and they capture and filter rain from the street uh, and are planted with plants that are okay with having their feet wet but are okay with being dry and are used to um, uh, some sort of semi-harsh conditions. Uh, so maybe the, the, uh, a little bit of you know, the salty, maybe they're a little salt tolerant from road salt uh, and, and okay with some of the pollutants and maybe even break down some of those pollutants. Um, and the benefit that that has, I mean, has huge water quality benefits, right? Because the water going through uh, is not not uh, picking up pollutants, and uh, you know, it's it's all filtering into um, the ground instead of going in, in a pipe into the river. But it also has these water quantity benefits, where you're not having. Um, uh, it's actually helping to alleviate the amount of water that we're getting downtown in our most urban centers. Uh, in New Haven, it's actually at the train station. So one of the major reasons for the citywide effort was that the train station experiences flooding and it was experiencing more and more frequent flooding um, as, as time goes on and we're seeing more significant rain events. Uh, and so instead of demolishing the train station or doing something at the location of the train station, um, the decision was made to do these distributed projects throughout the city. Um, and they together in, in summation uh, help alleviate that problem. Um, this, but the, the bioswales themselves and, and the rain gardens that, that uh, Alex and I were, were digging today, um, they are still in the urban in city they're not they're in within the city limits uh and in areas where often there are not a lot of green spaces and certainly uh, if you're a migratory bird or a butterfly there aren't very many opportunities to for um to stop off and and eat and and uh, pollinate and so um they create these little pockets of um native plants that are exist uh in a sort of a patchwork throughout the the city um and save the sounds role in this part of the watershed has been to take that 
that model and move it into the private land. So the city is working in the public right of way um, and, and doing a, a huge number at this point. And we were involved with those at the beginning, uh, but now they've, they've got that part, right? So they're, they're, they've tested that model and they're willing to implement them at scale. Um, but what they don't, they, what they, what they are not as prepared to do as we are is to cultivate partnerships with private um, homeowners who would be willing and interested in uh, in green infrastructure and stormwater management, um, but you know that's not within the city right of way. So um, that's this um, that's our role in uh, in this sort of citywide effort to manage stormwater in this greener way. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, just to follow up on that, I think it's. It's not intuitive for most folks and it's hard to believe that like what you could do with the water coming out of your downspout on Royden Ave in New Haven has anything to do with the cleanliness and the habitat quality of the sound. But it really, it really does. And I think like, you know, if everybody did a little tiny bit throughout that area. So again, as Gwen was saying that distributed, um, distributed impact would make a big difference because this the problems that we're facing with stormwater and other environmental issues is it didn't all happen at once. It happened little bit by bit. More houses were built and more, you know, the processes were, dis were disrupted bit by bit. And now we're sort of working on bringing them back bit by bit also. Yeah, that's a, that's a great message across the board. Uh, it applies in, in a lot of different things relative to the environment, but that's, uh, that's really good. Um, let's switch gears and talk about dams. Alex, when I met you, uh, we, we, there was a screening of this film and uh, somebody asked how many dams there were in Connecticut. And I think the answer was about 4,000. And I noticed on, on your website, it, actually, it actually says about 5,000, maybe more than 5,000. And that's shocking. Uh, and but then you think about the history and how many dams were built for industrial purposes for power and uh, and of course very few of those are in operation anymore yet they still exist and they they impact uh, the water quality they impact the migrating fish they uh, continue liability to the dam owner uh, for any sort of downstream or upstream flooding. And uh, they also need to be repaired and inspected. So I, I wonder if you all could uh, elaborate on some of those thoughts and uh, why dam removal is important to save the sound. Sure, yeah. I'll say when I was growing up, it, only when I came to realize the, the issue with dams did I un come to understand that every pond or lake that I swam on or fished on or played at as a kid was a dam, was a, an, an, an unnatural pond created by a dam. Um, I grew up in Eastern Massachusetts, which was had a very, a very long industrial history. And we just don't, we don't even, we take for granted that the most of the ponds and lakes that we a lot of the ponds and lakes that we see are from a dam and like it's not a it's not the hoover dam they're these little stone dams that are sort of scattered all through the watersheds of the state so yeah they're they're everywhere and it, it is kind of a shocking number but once you start to notice them it, it becomes pretty pretty evident um so why do we take them out um one reason that everyone thinks of is migratory fish. They think of salmon, which swim, you know, upstream uh, into shallower waters where their young have a better chance of, you know, surviving and then swimming downstream back out to the ocean. So migratory fish are a big part of it. And some of the migratory fish that we focus on here are um, alewife, which are a forage fish, um, a feeder fish, a bait fish, essentially, that <clears throat> is a huge source of food for other species in Long Island Sound, as well as across in the Atlantic. Um, and then also their young are a source of food for the um, freshwater species and predators that are in the streams that they come in to spawn. Um, there's a, 
in addition to these uh, migratory fish, there's also a lot of other species that just need to move up and down the, sh the river corridor in the course of their own life history, even if they're not going out to the sound. Um, so that's just sort of, you know, ecological connectivity. Um, that's really important and we're really trying to restore that, especially as I said, in climate change, we know that things are gonna to need to move as habitats are changing and becoming degraded, they're gonna to need to move up and downstream to escape this degradation, find cooler habitats if that's what they're looking for and think, you know, things like that. Um, and then there's another component, which is sediment. Um, people think of water, but what a river also does is it moves sediment downstream um, and that sediment you know, goes out into the estuaries, it forms the basis for tidal marshes. It also creates um, different habitat structures and different habitat types on the riverbed below. Um, so restoring that natural sediment transport is a big part of it. Um, I could probably go on, but Gwen, do you have anything to add about reasons to remove dams? <laughs> always, <laughs> always, always happy to talk about reasons to remove dams. Uh, that was, that. Alex, Alex summed it up. I think I would add um, uh, maybe uh, uh, why, why remove dams as opposed to focusing on another type of ecological restoration. And, um, and I, a dam is this permanent blockage, um, like a blocked artery on a river. And um, once you remove it, it doesn't come back. And so it sounds silly, but when you think about invasive species or you think about um, uh, maybe uh, introducing a, an extirpated species, um, that uh, cultivating that, 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 that restoration practice is, you know, maybe completely valid, but once you leave, you don't know what's going to happen there. You're, it requires monitoring and maintenance and ongoing cultivation. The one thing that uh, the that dams have this dam removal has this permanent restoration of ecological function on the system that we're working in and so you're you're allowing the river itself to uh to establish a path and uh and um restore the uh hydrologic function that forms riverbeds and forms new uh ecosystems um, I say new ecosystems because uh, something particularly in Connecticut that was in our history were these disturbance events. So um, disturbance events like fire um, and then following that disturbance events like people cultivating land. And so one of the uh, habitat types that's fairly rare is we, we kind of stopped uh, a lot of our agricultural practices in the state at the same time. So the forests in Connecticut are, are a very similar age. Um, and so one of the things that the dam removal does is it, it, it mimics these disturbance events um, that are fairly rare in, in what we're seeing now. And so there's a different, um, this sort of shrub uh, habitat and, uh, and wetland uh, complex that exists right after a dam removal is a unique habitat type and, um, and has been interest, of interest to our, our academic partners and um, and I mean us as well, <laughs> but uh, uh, is another really big benefit of, of dam removal. Great. Well, I, I know we could go on further with this topic and, and I'd also, I, I think we're going to have to have you come back and we'll, we'll talk more because I'd like to talk about the, uh, your work with coastal resiliency too, the living shorelines. Uh, but I want to uh, make sure we have time for our audience to ask some questions. Uh, I'd like to just end, end this segment by asking you, uh, we, we always, uh, our audience always likes to know what they can do. And you, you've sort of touched upon that in a, in a way, but could I ask each of you what people can do to make a difference? What sort of action might they be able to, to take? I mean, they can like, real, like literally start in their own yards. I mean, that's kind of what we're seeing with our, um, you know, our distributed residential rain garden program is just thinking about the water that falls onto your roof. Where does it go from there? Does it infiltrate into the ground? Does it flow into the street? Does it go into a storm drain? And then where does it go from there? I mean, that would be, that is something you can literally do in your own backyard. Um, 
there's a lot more people could do. I mean, Richard, after you and I met, um, you got in touch with us about, you know, some potential projects that you had in mind. Um, other folks that we meet through events like this, they reach out to us and say, hey, there's a, a culvert that's perched in my neighborhood, or, you know, this would be a great spot for a rain garden. You know, that just, you know, re, you know, being aware of the types of practices that um, are possible and then reaching out to folks that are doing it like us um, can be like a really good way to sort of advance the things that we're working on. Yeah, if you, um, being observers in your local ecosystems uh, is, is uh, the state uh, right now compiles a, a weekly diagramus fish report. And so they collect data from all the different rivers uh, in the state. Um, and if you were to see fish at the base of a dam near you, um, and and uh, then that would be um, perhaps a, a reason to consider, um, you know, pursuing removal of that dam. Um, and so if that's that's uh, that is often how we find uh, projects that we're working on. There's, uh, I mean, there's an element of, you know, we we work collectively with with partners, restoration partners around the state to uh, to prioritize what projects we're going to work on, but um, but the mo mo I would say the, really the most important part of that is having a willing and collaborative local partner, and so um, that is uh, that that's something that you know all of you could 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 think about as you're sort of exploring your your local rivers. Um, I guess we're also the uh, uh, international coastal cleanup. Uh, coordinator for for Connecticut. So for those of you who uh, for, who live in Connecticut, if you're interested in participating in that, as of th at this point, we're uh, planning on holding um, International Coastal Cleanup Day in September. Uh, and so there will be. Uh, last year there were 70 cleanups all around the state, um, all you know within uh, maybe a month period, uh, and that was an opportunity to keep uh, plastic out of the. Uh, ocean, world's oceans and, um, you know, get people outside and, and um, you know, participating in their, their local ecosystem. Um, and that's something that, you know, is an activity that could happen solo if, if it needs to. So um, we'll likely still have that activity up in September. Yeah, that's great, great advice, Gwen. And that's uh, something I'd like uh, future frogmen to get involved with as well, your international coastal cleanup. Uh, we are, uh, this was to be our year of action, and uh, we, we've run into an obstacle with the COVID-19. Uh, we, we had started doing uh, monthly coastal cleanups, and we executed in January and February, and then we had to stop in March, unfortunately. But uh, we, uh, we were attracting about 50 students, uh, and we had a really great turnout and uh, a lot of fun and a lot of uh, productivity, and unfortunately, a lot of trash, a lot of... Uh, but it was all cataloged and submitted to NOAA, and uh, we'd love to work with you. And by the way, if anyone's interested in learning more about us, uh, just check out our website, uh, futurefrogmen.org, and uh, you can learn more about us there. So let's, let's shift over to questions. Thank you so much for your, your great information there, um, Alex and Gwen, really wonderful. Um, we have a question here, folks, uh, you can, uh, uh, unmute yourself and ask your question or enter it in the chat box. I have, uh, I'll read off a couple that are in the chat box here. One is, uh, are there lessons from recharging groundwater in big, densely populated cities worldwide? Um, so, we, so we actually, I, I can talk about a project. So the Quinnipiac uh, River, uh, there was a super fun site on the Quinnipiac River. Uh, and one of the uh, impacts was to a drinking water aquifer and um, and so we were funded to install a number of um, rain gardens in uh, th that would um, just would would put recharge the neighboring aquifer so the intention was to uh, to recharge more groundwater in the adjacent aquifer that had not been impacted by the Superfund site uh, in and as as mitigation for the uh, impact and that was funded by the the PRP by the responsible party who had uh, who had uh, polluted that aquifer um, that 
is something that's being thought about on a large scale is trying to get water back into the ground. So in really dry environments, um, and there's, uh, you know, we, we have to move beyond putting clean water into our storm drains. Um, and that's another reason why this green infrastructure isn't, it isn't just right for places where, that have combined sewers. It, it's needed in places that have separated sewers too. We, we really need, um, you know, to, uh, to be thinking about putting clean water back in the ground before, uh, before discharging it uh, as one point source into a river. Um, but that that can be scaled up and uh, and is uh, is honestly um, being scaled up in places like Las Vegas and San Diego and uh, South Africa is a is a big um, a big big one. I don't know if any, there's so they uh, actually were supposed to run out of water. Uh, uh, I can't remember. It was about a year ago now, and they managed to cut their use by 50% and then uh, were able to recharge uh, their aquifer. And so they have extended their, um, that timeline significantly. Now they're, they're, they're not done with the problems, but, it, uh, but it's shown how possible it is for big cities to think about um, recharge. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say, um... I don't think it's based on groundwater, but I know that New York City and Philadelphia are just a couple like large cities in the area that are um, have implemented this green stormwater technology. These like you know these small distributed bioswales throughout their city, you know, not just because they're very functional at getting a lot of water into the ground as opposed to into storm drains. So um, yeah, definitely look into those cities and see what they're doing. Thank you. That was definitely informative. Thank you. Uh, we have a question here from uh, Anthony Zamba, and it's uh, Hi, Anthony. <laughs> it's uh, he's got some upfront uh, statements, so let me just read it to you. Uh, it says Gwen has also served as a rotating member of the Connecticut Wetland in lieu fee program for three years. Thanks, Gwen. The program could continue to benefit from Gwen's and Alex's expertise through information sharing. We have reached out to NGOs, consulting firms, and regulatory agencies to gather data on costs for stream restoration. Any data that STS or others could share with the ILF program would help make our data set more robust so that we can better assess, justify the credit fee for linear foot of stream impacts. So kind of a statement, but uh, I guess a, a question about uh, any possibility of data sharing. Can I ask, do you guys have a credit or a fee? What is the current cost per linear foot? Do you know? Yeah, so right now we've been using um, $100 um, for, two, no, $200 for, uh, per linear foot of for intermittent water courses and $600 per linear foot of print for perennial water course. Um, so that's the, the 200 times three, one for each bank and then one for the stream bed itself. Um, so those how numbers- does that, How does that compare to, to wet, what do you have for wetlands? It's like- No, uh, the wetlands, it's based on cover type and, and uh, um, service area, so. So the stream credit was basically just adopted by some of the um, previous ILF programs that were around. And so, you know, we don't even really know if it's enough to fund restoration projects in Connecticut using Connecticut economy prices. Um, and uh, what we would like to do is, is adjust that one way or the other. Uh, to make sure that it's enough to, to fund restoration, but also uh, not make it so that it's prohibitive um, uh, to, for the sale of credits. Sure. Yeah. Uh, we know that, you know, every water course is, uh, has so many different vari variables to consider and um, that it impact cost. And so really the only way that we can approach it is to build a big enough, robust enough data set that we can average out those costs uh, across all those variables and knowing that, you know, sometimes, you know, 
the fee will not be able to generate enough money to cover certain types of restorations, stream restorations uh, through the grant process, but other times it will. And oftentimes the people applying for the grants are matching it with other funding sources. So we don't necessarily have to cover the cost of every restoration project, but uh, be able to, you know, on the average, be able to, to do that. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. I uh, don't have a, a response to that right off the top of my head, but we could certainly get you some data related to that. Um, yeah, and, and that's that that's been the response from everybody. It's like yeah. it's really taking the time to 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 calculate out the cost. Right. But, you you so you would need cost of projects and the linear foot feet of restoration, right? Those exactly. are the two variables. Just, yeah, divide those numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for like Pond Lily, I know there was a dam removal, yeah. but also, you know, stream restoration that you had to take into consideration, um, both upstream and downstream, right? To prevent like head cutting and, you know, sure. have you get the gradients right and um, planting perhaps, um, all those things come into play and, and design and permitting costs too. Right. Well, great. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Anthony. Uh, Gwen, you. Alex, uh, Anthony's uh, email is in the chat box if, if you need it. Um, and I can always provide that to you afterwards if you like. And uh, we have uh, one more question here. Uh, if anyone else has one, uh, please let us know. Uh, but I'll read this one. Uh, it's a three-part question about dams. What kind of obstacles do you encounter when removing dams? How does it get funded? And what percentage of dams in Connecticut are now obsolete? You want to take it? You want me to? Um, an obstacle to dams is an obstacle to dam removal can be sort of cultural, uh, surprisingly. Um, lots of folks get used to the pond that's either in their backyard or in their town center or just in the woods that they like to visit. So there can be there can be significant pushback from people who they like the landscape being what what it is. I mean, I was just commenting on how all the ponds that I grew up on were are all damned ponds. Um, so that that's a that can be a significant hurdle. Um, another hurdle is your second question, which is how does it get funded? Um, Gwen was speaking earlier about how a lot of the money that we or a lot of the projects are funded through grants um you know federal grants and other grants a lot of times grants need match so you might get you know you might have to match what the federal government gives you by 50 percent or 100 percent, and that can be either in kind like services or actual cash um, but yeah getting the money together um i think what save the sound brings to the table is a lot of experience like what Gwen was saying with all these different components so managing the contractors, managing the consultants, managing the permitting, and managing the grants. So there's a lot that goes into it, and all there's a lot of moving parts, and they all have to kind of get lined up at the same time for that to sort of happen. Yeah, just um, to plug one of one of the potential funding sources is what Anthony was just describing, which is the in lieu fee program. So if uh, if there's impacts to a, a river. Uh, by the Department of Transportation or others that, um, you know, that, that a dam removal could be considered as mitigation for that, uh, that activity. Uh, and that's one funding source that um, is, is somewhat new to the state of Connecticut, the uh, Anthony's program um, that he manages with uh, uh, Audubon uh, is, uh, is been around for, for a few years at this point, maybe five, is that right? I think so. Any uh, any idea on? Uh... Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> Since 2013. Okay. Yep. Yep. So, oh wait. Uh, and what percentage? Okay. Uh, percentage of obsolete dams. So I have a, a so the the discrepancy for number of dams in Connecticut has to do with number of registered dams versus number of barriers that we think might exist in the state. So we know that there are over 4,000 dams, but that's, that's as close as we have, the state has as a number um, for what, uh, 
you know, how many dams there are. But of those, there are 40. Oh, I'm okay. Yes, there are 40 state and federal flood control dams in the state. Um, 400 municipal or nonprofit, so municipal or land trust owned dams. Uh, 268 or sorry, 264 dams that are owned by the uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, and 3,696 privately owned dams in the state of Connecticut. Um, and so that's, you know, well over three quarters of the dams in the state are privately owned. And so while that doesn't necessarily mean that all of those are not, are, are quote obsolete, it does mean that there isn't someone who's be, being paid to, to keep them and maintain them. Um, so some of those might be, uh, some of those might be water supply, but the vast majority of dams um, were constructed in an industrial time with a miller. Uh, and the millers are, are, were, had their livelihood and their livelihood was tied to the operation and the function of the dams themselves. Uh, and that just isn't true anymore. That, 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 uh, that changed significantly with the industrial revolution. And so um, there are plenty of dams that could be removed without tackling the or, or considering to remove things like Candlewood Lake and other, and other things that you might think of or, or flood control stu structures, the Tallinn flood control dam. It's, it's, uh, there are, are uh, dams that serve purposes that are a part of our, um, our existence as, as people, as part of ecosystems. Um, but particularly in, in the Northeast, um, there are many dams that don't fall into that into that category. So hopefully that helped with the, the numbers a little bit. It's not quite the percentage, but. Oh, that's great. Uh, Kevin, you had a question. Uh, yes, hi, um, introduced myself. I've seen, met you before, Richard, and thanks for hosting this. And, uh, and to everyone else, I maybe met you through Save the Sound. Um, here in, I live in Black Rock, and last year we joined the Unified Water Study um, it was our first year with the study, and uh, we actually um, sort of formed our own group, calling ourselves the Black Rock Harbor Study. And we're anxious for uh, sampling to begin this season, e even though it's been delayed a few months because of the uh, virus. Um, and uh, yeah, some pertinent questions I had. Um, uh, the, Oh, where was the West River? Um, you mentioned that for one of your projects. Oh, uh, in New Haven, there's a few of them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this right. one was the West River, New Haven. Gotcha. Um, but no, in the news over the winter, um, the Norwalk River was uh, Greenwich wanted to divert uh, some water from that to, and I was just looking for the status of that project, if that got approved or. Um, um this, you're talking about Aquarian? Yeah, I think it was through Aquarian, yeah. Yeah, so um, Save the Sound and uh, uh, through the Soundkeeper and Trout Unlimited um, and other partners, including the Norwalk River Watershed Association, opposed Aquarian's diversion of uh, one million gallons per day from the Norwalk River uh, and were successful. Aquarian withdrew their application, which is very exciting. Um, the Norwalk River is the site of uh, of a uh, important dam removal project for us uh, at Merwin Meadows Park in Wilton. Um, that project is uh, there was a dam removal downstream and upstream. So if the Merwin Meadows uh, site is restored, uh, that's a full 17 miles from Long Island Sound up to Georgetown uh, that will all be uh, free flowing and and available. Um, and since that uh, water diversion uh, was denied, the, uh, the uh, water in the Norwalk, the main stem of the Norwalk River, um, has the potential to be, you know, there, there aren't, it isn't any uh, water supply or flood control on that segment of the river. And so there's a lot of um, uh, uh, potential benefits to a variety of species, um, that, you know, with the stream not going dry in the summer and things like yeah. that as we experience potential drought. 
So that's, that's great um, news. successfully, yeah, successfully yeah. Uh, 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 withdrew their application. I understand. That's great. And uh, basically, the other follow-up, the reason I got involved with the Unified Water Study is my my work is I do all types of diving um, on boats, uh, maintaining them underwater and uh, related services. Um, and uh, the, 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 my story has to do with the Housatonic River after Hurricane Sandy. Um, the Housatonic River has at slack tide at most a half hour of slack tide. But the incredible volume of water that the Housatonic and every other watershed experienced after Sandy, the river overcame the tide for approximately one week after the storm passed. Um, meaning that uh, the tide was unaffected because of the volume of water. And uh, I, I just, uh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, but this, and you paint a good picture of how important our streams are um, to, to the habitat of the sound and all the places they touch. Um, with our Black Rock Harbor study, we're interested in looking into a drain project, uh, doing some type of stencil on our storm drains. and. Uh, just, I could leave you with that question. Um, if you've uh, helped any other groups uh, start a project like that, I think you you have you been in touch with with Bill, our soundkeeper. I think I yeah. think he had brought there's that up recently. Yeah, there's a few of us that are looking into it. I know the Surfrider Foundation has some models, um, and uh, yeah, we we've been talking to Bill about it. Yes. Yeah, we have some we have some stencils, um, and then uh, in Westchester they they did some um, some decals and things like that. So okay. um, yeah, that's definitely been right. been something that that uh, that we've worked with before. But yeah, keep keep chatting with Bill about that. We'll, uh, okay. we'll find do. a way to get 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 you uh, get you some storm drain stencils for sure. Okay. No, very good. So thanks, uh, Kevin. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Great question. Okay, uh, that was really excellent. Uh, thank you, Gwen and Alex. Uh, really uh, very interesting. And I, I look forward to having you come back and, and uh, continuing this conversation. And uh, thank you, audience, for joining us. If you're not a subscriber, please visit our website and uh, sign up so you can hear about uh, our ongoing conversation series and check out other things we're doing. It's uh, futurefrogmen.org. Um, so Gwen and Alex and uh, audience, uh, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks a lot. It's great. Thanks, everybody. We hope you liked our Blue Earth podcast. Thank you for listening. And please rate and review the show wherever you're hearing us. We're going to release the show on a weekly basis. So until next time, remember, anybody can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks. <laughs>